Welcome to Overfill, a podcast where we analyze cultural items that have been underrated or overlooked. I'm your host, Joe. And I'm your other host, Nadim. And for today's episode, we'll be analyzing the 2012 movie Pitch Perfect, the a cappella musical comedy directed by Jason Moore and starring Anna Kendrick, Skylar Astin, and Ben Platt. Our finding here is that Pitch Perfect, beneath its surface-level message of creative empowerment, advocates for a kind of institutional conformity, saying that we can only negotiate with institutions and their power when crafting our identities, that institutions conform as well as produce our very sense of self. This is Overfill. Our last episode discussed some of the most iconic vines of our time and why they appealed so much to a millennial audience. Our conclusion was that young viners use absurdist humor to point out absurd things in society, to subvert stereotypes about themselves, and to voice their concerns against large institutions. That was Vine. But doing a complete 180, Pitch Perfect as a trilogy embodies almost the opposite thesis. The characters, plots, and locations all power the general theme that institutions are necessary to our identity, that they structure our ambitions, our hopes, our careers, and our very sense of self. Where Vine users criticize large institutions, Pitch Perfect has no trouble embracing them, or with a more generous reading, they're merely representing the totalizing hold they have on our psyches. The premise of Pitch Perfect is simple. Rival a cappella groups, the Barden Bellas and the Treblemakers, compete to win a singing championship. Becca Mitchell, played by Anna Kendrick, joins the a cappella group Barden Bellas and helps to modernize their style so that they win the competition. Taking a look at all three Pitch Perfect movies, institutions continuously elevate in scope and breadth as the characters compete at larger and larger venues. In the first movie, the competition is between other colleges. In the second movie, the competition moves to the world championship stage between all other previous winners. And in the third movie, the competition is uh, held at the U.S. military with DJ Khaled, along with many other musical groups, not just a cappella groups. As the institutions get bigger and bigger, the characters seem to become more evolved themselves, creatively and psychologically. We'll see how Pitch Perfect continuously constrains characters' identity within the confines of the institution while also celebrating their creative freedom. Released in 2012, the first Pitch Perfect was a surprise success for everyone. With only a budget of 17 million, Pitch Perfect grossed 115 million worldwide and scored 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. Its sequel, Pitch Perfect 2, was released in 2015 and became the highest grossing musical comedy of all time. Part of Pitch Perfect's success is because of its musical numbers. To be honest, they're bops. They're highly replayable. Featuring acapella arrangements of chart toppers in the 2000s and 2010s, Pitch Perfect was a modern musical that appealed to music lovers and non-lovers throughout. The songs were well known. They were cushioned between realistic story elements and always performed in the context of competition or audition. In other words, singing did not arise from internal drama or emotion, a musical trope that often turns off the average viewer. 
Pitch Perfect also came out in the peak of the Glee era. It subverted what many critics initially thought it would be. Just another episode of Glee with its same high school themes of acceptance and diversity. Instead, Pitch Perfect was a modern Grease meets Mean Girls, and the world drew a fresh breath from the counterpoint it offered to Glee's domination of the genre. But I think another element is at play here. Pitch Perfect appealed largely to a high school audience. I know this from firsthand experience. Me and my friend, you know, very tough guys, right? <laughs> right, Nadim, you know, you know that. <laughs> we we would rewatch Pitch Perfect over and over again, as if it were an addiction we couldn't pin down. But it wasn't just us. For a while, the Cup song by Anna Kendrick haunted every high school hallway. Classroom and cafeteria table, becoming a viral sensation on YouTube, where young people, especially those in high school, posted their own rendition of the Cup song "When I'm Gone." To them, I think Anna Kendrick's character and the Cup song symbolized an independence and resourcefulness, a cool factor that we could embody if only we learned the correct choreography. Do you do you remember the Cup song, Nadim? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> okay. So, okay. <laughs> so, why the appeal? I think because of its message of institutional acceptance and triumph, Pitch Perfect offered a fantasy to young people, a story that the institutions they fretted about would come to accept them if only they could manage to work within them. That is the college or university movie as a whole, where characters quote unquote find themselves, functions as a kind of comforting fairy tale for young people, a utopia where institutions are personified at the same time they offer a identity salvation. We'll see that Pitch Perfect, in particular, plays these themes quite significantly. But what is an institution, and are they always bad? First. Institutions are not just physical locations like buildings, schools, or hospitals. On a broad level, institutions are usually social groups with hierarchies legitimized by some social process. Your college or university, for example, is an institution, not because it has a building and a campus, but because we collectively recognize its authority as a social group or an organization. And it's true that not all institutions are bad; they can be a great source of community and positive change. But major institutions are almost always bound up in some kind of power, and they can be used as a tool to serve the interests of powerful and sometimes dangerous groups. On top of that, institutions can replace some of our desires and hopes in order to serve them better. Think about how our jobs often lead us to think differently or desire differently. Think about how mob mentality or institutional mentality can change the way we act, behave, feel, and exist in small or large ways. We'll see that Pitch Perfect doesn't do away with power systems. In fact, it seems to communicate that we need power systems in order to find relation within them. Whether or not that's a problematic message is up to you to think about. Let's get started. There are two characters of interest in our analysis today. 
Becca Mitchell, played by Anna Kendrick, and Benji Applebaum, played by Ben Platt. You know, as a German speaker, Applebaum yeah. means apple tree. Oh. So you know German. Well, now I know why you don't like fun things. Fun fact of the day. Anyways, despite being very different, both characters are somewhat independent spirits, not yet acclimated to the college system. They live in parallel with each other, symbolizing opposite ways in which we interact with institutions. Anna Kendrick's Becca represents our suspicion to the institutions, while Ben Platt's Benji represents our embracing of them. In the end, both Becca and Benji come to be accepted within the prevailing institutions of the movie, and arguably, they seem to lose some of their own identity as a result. Let's start with Becca. Becca, the protagonist of the story, is on one end of the spectrum demonstrating our suspicions of institutions. At the start of Pitch Perfect, Becca wants no part of college life. Where other characters want to join up on campus as soon as possible, Becca is the only character who wants a fairly independent life. One that's entirely separate from the framework of college. She tells her father that she never wanted to go to college. That she wants to move to LA and become a DJ and start paying her dues. I need to move to LA and get a job at a record label and start paying my dues. Uh, but you're going to get a college education first. Becca's father tells her that he will help her move to LA and become a DJ only after she gets involved on campus and demonstrates an attempt to fit in. She agrees to make an effort and thus is led to the a cappella group, the Barden Bellas. She auditions, plays the riff-off game, and then soon takes over the entire group. She then ultimately helps the Bellas win. With Becca, Pitch Perfect offers us a rather depressing message. It tells us that we can't form our identities outside of the institutions we're in, that we can only negotiate with institutional power when we're forming our very sense of self. Becca wants to be a DJ, which in this film is situated as the complete opposite of the a cappella group. The DJ for Becca is independent. It can perform alone. It doesn't have to rely on others or an institution in order to function well. In essence, Becca and her aspirations of becoming a DJ represent a path separate from institutional power. And instead of seeing her pursue that path, Pitch Perfect offers her an institution that in many ways, overrides those aspirations. Becca's father is a college professor, and this choice of career is no accident. From a story perspective, him being a college professor allows him to be personified as the college system itself. In other words, college is symbolized through Becca's father as a patriarchal face. By telling her to join up on campus, Becca's father is urging Becca to become acclimated into the institution as soon as possible. With the symbolic roles we've established, this means that the college system, Becca's father, is telling an independent mind, Becca, to become part of an institution as a prerequisite to achieving independence or becoming a DJ. This, of course, will never actually come for Becca. In this context, there is a commentary here about how the college system is training young people to function as part of a team, to normalize us into the institution while trying to rid us of our more independent urges. Becca agrees to become involved on campus and join up with the Bard and Bellas. In her audition, she breaks from the mold. Instead of singing the audition song, she reaches over and grabs a cup from the audition table. Showing that she thinks outside the box, Becca performs the cup song and is welcomed into the Bard and Bellas the following night. 
As a DJ and a producer, Becca is able to arrange and mash up top songs like Price Tag, Don't You Forget About Me, and Just The Way You Are, in order to modernize the Bardembellas and lead them to victory. On the surface, the film seems to be celebrating out-of-box thinking. Ideas that break out of the traditional institutional mold. Becca herself is seen questioning Aubrey Posen, the leader of the Bard and Bellas, many times. There's nothing from this century on here. Because we don't stray from tradition. I would be happy to do it if I got to pick a new song and do an arrangement. Well, that's not how we run things here. Aubrey, maybe Becca has a point. Maybe we could try something oh, excuse new. Excuse me? She questions why they are always singing the same songs. She correctly points out that if they were to modernize their style away from the 80s and 90s repertoire, they'd win the championship. It is only by taking control of the Bardembellas and applying her own creativity that Becca is able to lead the Bardembellas to the championship. So after all that, you might be wondering, well, the film isn't advocating for institutions then. It's advocating for a breaking of institutions, right? To challenge the rules, to break the mold, to think outside the box. It's saying the opposite of what you guys are trying to prove. Fake news, unsubscribed. <laughs> but we turn the question around. Did Becca actually challenge the institution? Or did she merely update it to suit modern needs? Did she change the power system she was in? Or did she play right into its hands? At our jobs, we're often celebrated for thinking outside the box. But think carefully. Are you really thinking outside the box? Or merely stretching it so that it comes to accept you and your ideas? What is the true box? And if we are truly thinking outside of it, then why are our ideas so positively embraced? Pitch Perfect would seem to side with this last question that our supposedly creative ideas can only be accepted if they work within a larger framework of power. Institutions have a tricky way of using ideas that were once on the fringes in order to bring them to the mainstream. Think about the fashion crazes or the art movements that the mainstream often appropriates from people of color or from the fringes of culture. Creative ideas and people who truly challenge the institution, who are truly outside the box, are often actually never heard. This leads to our second character of interest, Benji Applebaum, who is at the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Becca. Where Becca represents our suspicion to institutions, Benji represents our embracing of them. Also, their names start with the same letter, which often, but not always, means the writer is trying to draw a connection between them. Benji is portrayed as an eclectic character who loves magic tricks. Just so you know, I'm not a total nerd. I also happen to be super into close-up magic. He's seen as a weirdo. He has a strange obsession with the rival a cappella group on campus, the Troublemakers, and wants desperately to join them. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Benjamin Applebaum. He does end up auditioning, but despite performing extremely well at auditions, Benji is not welcome into the group. 
None of the characters ever overtly say why this is the case, but the film shows us that it is Benji's magic tricks, the symbolic node of his weirdness and independence, that he is not allowed in. There's a scene where Benji, alone in his dorm room, longingly listens to the newly initiated a cappella members partying while performing a magic trick in his hands. Keep your head up low. You can let your hand down there. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. This demonstrates that his strange hobby is the reason that he is not accepted into the group. But Benji does come to be accepted within the Troublemakers only after the leader resigns from the group and a spot opens up for him. Spot opened up and it's yours if you want it. Just one condition. Promise me you won't get all weird. We're just a group of guys singing a bunch of covers of songs, okay? If you get weird, they will definitely not let you stay. Deal. Although, I don't know what you mean by weird. Unlike Becca, who is actively trying to change the Barton Bellas, it's only through a shift in leadership that Benji is actually allowed to join. In any case, Benji is able to utilize his love of magic tricks in the final performance. In the climactic performance, he sings B.O.B.'s Magic, and the audience is meant to take this as Benji finally resolving his strange quirk into the public, institutionalized face of collegiate a cappella. As in many coming-of-age movies, this is where Benji has grown up, channeling his childish impulses into something more productive. I've got the magic in Touch that track, it turns into bolt. Now everybody knows I've got the magic in me. When I hit the floor, the girls come snapping. So here are the parallels. If Becca's independent spirit, her separation from the institution, is symbolized as her love for DJing, then Benji's independent spirit is symbolized through his love of magic tricks. Like Becca, Benji's independent spirit actually pays off for the troublemakers, as he sings magic in the final performance and thereby heightens the final performance. Becca's independence pays off for the Barton Bellas as well, as it's through her mashups that the Bellas actually win. Both characters, as we've seen, thus lose a bit of themselves in their triumph with their respective groups. By the end of the movie, Becca is seen not wanting to pursue the life of an independent DJ anymore, that is, the life separate from the script of college. And Benji is seen to be fully assimilated into the group at a much more watered-down version of himself. It seems that Benji's independence then is negotiated with institutional power as it becomes swallowed within it. Just as Becca repurposes her love of DJing in order to win the competition, Benji has to repurpose his love of magic, or his independence, to be more palpable, marketable, usable, and performable for the institution. Not all institutions are bad, and having an identity that is somewhat defined by an institution can give a lot of people purpose. But in Pitch Perfect, the institution in question is worth getting suspicious about. There are several power systems at play in Pitch Perfect. 
there's the Barden Bellas, Barden University, and the International Championship of Collegiate Acapella, or the ICCA. Now the ICCA is a real organization, but in Pitch Perfect it is fictionalized and personified as two commentators, Gail and John, played by Elizabeth Banks and John Michael Higgins. So true, John, nothing makes a woman feel more like a girl than a man who sings like a boy. Women are about as good at acapella as they are at being doctors. I think we have just seen some acapella history being made, John. And from an all-female group, Gail, I could never have called this one. Never? Well, you are a misogynist at heart, so there's no way you would have bet on these girls Absolutely. John is described as a misogynist at heart, and through all three films, his misogynistic comments increase in severity. As we've seen earlier, institutions are often bound up in power, used as a tool to serve the interests of powerful and maybe even dangerous groups. Although Becca and Benji are both positive agents of change within their own acapella groups, they're still working within the framework of the fictionalized ICCA, controlled by the problematic Gail and John. Furthering our thesis, Gail, John, and the ICCA as a whole are never questioned or challenged despite airing very sexist and racist comments about the primary characters. We're meant to laugh at John for his backward views, but despite the Barden Bellas gaining significant cultural power throughout the films, they don't ever topple the institution that controls, doubts, or insults them. There's only one instance where an institution does not fully come to accept our characters, and I think this scene is telling. Early in the film, during the riff-off, the rival a cappella groups on campus compete in an informal setting, but one that is still bound up by tradition. In Rapid Fire, they have to perform songs in categories like Ladies of the 80s and Songs About Sex. The climactic moment comes when Becca sings No Diggity. Shorty, get down, good lord. Baby got them open all over town. Strictly bitch, you don't play around. Cover much ground. Got game by the pound. It's a song that seems to unify all the competing a cappella groups, as well as all the people watching. It's actually quite touching. As Becca puts her song forward, she learns to challenge the rules and see a larger community around her joined by music. And at the end of the song, it's understood that Becca's and the Bellas have won the riff off. But because of a technicality, they do not actually win the riff off, even though they should have. The troublemakers, in fact, win. This is an instance where we see characters challenging the rules, showing their creativity, but not negotiating with power. They are instead going against power. As such, the institution does not accept them, further demonstrating that we can only work within the confines of power when living out our lives, that as much as a system seems to celebrate and produce our creativity, it also confines it within rigid boundaries. Pitch Perfect is a fun film, one that can be watched again and again for its musical numbers alone. At the same time, I can't help but feel as though it undoes a lot of the mythologies of the humanist subject. 
That is, someone who is fully autonomous, aware, and free to make whatever choices they want. Because we are always bound up in some kind of institutional power, we can never really be free from its grasp. Our consciousness is always, to some degree, in submission to powers greater than ourselves. Our only relief, then, might be from the community and creativity we gain within these institutions, and the small acts of rebellion that may help shift it towards positive change. This has been Overfill. I hate the alliteration, Joe. Shut up. Don't you find it difficult to pronounce? Oh, okay. (laughs)